Where do you see your career in 10 years? What are you doing now to help you get there? The sooner you start enhancing your skills, the sooner you'll be ready. That's why AARP has reskilling courses in a variety of categories like marketing and management to help your income live as long as you do. That's right. AARP has a bevy of free skill building courses for you to choose from because the steps that you choose to take today will help you to love what you do in the future. And that's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're talking tax planning to shrink what you owe with Sean Mullaney. Right, Joel, we've got Sean Mullaney back on. He is a repeat guest, and we've talked about his accolades a previous episode. He used to work for the IRS back in the day there, but uh, he now writes over at FiTaxGuy.com. He's a fiduciary financial advisor, and indeed, we are going to be talking about the importance of long-term tax planning today. And so let's start with a quick analogy, right? Imagine you've got a nail in your tire. Imagine it's slowly leaking air. Uh, Joel, maybe I'm thinking of your car, uh, which <laughs> recently had this yep. issue. Uh, if you just notice that that this is the case, right, that your tire is looking a little bit flat, then of course you're going to want to bust out the air pump or find some free air at a gas station or something. Or Costco. Costco. Get that tire back to the proper PSI so you can move on with your day. And you can do that a couple times, but it's not a permanent solution in, in a similar way. If you are only looking to the short-term fixes, if you are only looking at the current year, you're not it's not a permanent fix. And when it comes to making sure that you're fully optimized to pay as little tax as possible, you need to take more of a long-term look. That being said, today we are going to talk about some of the <laughs> year-end tax moves you can make because the urgent is also still important in the here and now. But we're going to discuss why a long-term approach is best. We're going to discuss why Sean favors a traditional over Roth account, at least in one specific instance. We're going to talk about the best retirement account if you're self-employed. I'm sure we'll talk about plenty more today. Sean, 
Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Matt, Joel, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, Sean. We're glad to have you, man. Always good to chat with you. And we got to catch up recently at FinCon in New Orleans, which is a good time. You didn't have this uh, smashing goatee that you now have, but you look magnificent, my friend. He was all clean cut and professional there at yeah. the conference, and now he's in his uh, winter hibernation That's right. look. That's right. <laughs> well, obviously, Sean, you've been on before. The first question we ask everybody as Matt and I drink a craft beer while we talk money. Well, it's something we explore, John in the here and now while we're also trying to be smart save and invest for our future what's that for you what's that splurge i think last time it was going to hawaii but those splurges change over the years too absolutely and so for me the splurge right now is four flying dutchmen at in and out burger oh very california answer (laughs) so the problem with the splurge is it's both uh, money and time right so where i live in the west valley in los angeles we have a limited number of In-N-Out burgers. And you can spend 20 minutes plus in the drive-through waiting for your four Flying Dutchmen, which costs 16.43, I believe. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, by the way, it happens to be Joe Rogan's favorite fast food item these days too, which I'm <laughs> okay, well, psyched about. I don't know what that okay, is. So we, I've heard of like animal style or yeah. I, yeah, what is four Flying Dutchmen? So a Flying Dutchman is two burger patties and they put uh, American cheese in between the two burger patties and then on top of the two burger patties. So when I get it, I get it in an unmarked box. It's so weird, right? There's no <laughs> branding, no logo, no nothing, right? So it's, you know, very carnivore. Um, now, I'm able to get it even though I don't have the wealth profile of Joe Rogan, but, you know, it's a splurge, right? So um, they taste great and, yeah, no carbs, right? Trying to avoid carbs oh, wait a and seed so, oil and stuff like that. So it's literally just patties and cheese? It's literally not a burger. Like, there's no bun. Yeah, there's no bun, right? Apparently, you can get it, like, mustard style where they grill it with <laughs> mustard on the grill. I've oh. never done that. Um, but, I'm yeah, I, I love the Flying Dutchman. Uh, but like in, in my area, you have to spend some time on it. Uh, they are fortunately putting in a new In-N-Out burger near to where I live, so I'm looking forward to that. But until then, <laughs> you have to time it just right. If you go at 4 p.m., it's too late. You're going to be spending 20 or 30 minutes, and I usually don't have that time in the afternoon to spend. So I try to get there, you know, 2, 2.30-ish after the lunch rush, but before the dinner rush, before school's let out, and you got a, you got a shot to maybe – be there for 10 minutes or so in the drive-thru. I was thinking, you know, that's going to be a great time to catch up on my How to Money episodes, right? Maybe it's going to be me (laughs) and Matt and Joel waiting for my four Flying Dutchmen. There you go. go. I was going to say... Sean, you're, you're known for your optimization. I love that you even like to optimize when you go to an hamburger <laughs> to avoid wasting too much time. And while he's getting his protein fix. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. So I, I feel like in the intro, I kind of bashed the short-term fix, right? Like I, I bashed Joel and his multiple fill-ups <laughs> on his flat tire <laughs> as opposed to actually getting his tire fixed. But it is important to look at some of those short-term tax moves that folks could potentially make this year if they find themselves in a situation where basically they've made more money than they thought. That's a certainly a good problem to have, but that can result in a larger tax bill. Maybe it could even be because of those high yield savings account rates that are contributing to a higher AGI. Yeah. Um, but what levers are there, Sean, at this point in the year that folks can pull in order to reduce their taxable income before the end of the year? Yeah, there's a few, uh, Matt. So what I'd say is for those who are in the accumulation phase, right, we're still working, 
look at maybe maxing out those traditional 401ks at work, right? We'll, we'll come back to that, but maybe at year end, you're going to get a big bonus and you say, oh boy, that's going to you know shoot up my income this year. So maybe maxing out the traditional 401k, it may be too late at this point, depending on when you're listening to the episode, but there are other things that could be done, right? Something called a donor advised fund. I'm a big fan of this tactic where, hey, you know what? We want to do a year-end charitable contribution, and we're not even sure which charity we want to get that money. So maybe what we do is we move money or maybe even better appreciated stock from our taxable brokerage account to a donor-advised fund. We take the deduction in this year, which might be very impactful depending on our circumstances. And then over the next few years, we can dole that money out to charities from the so-called donor-advised fund. What it does is it accelerates a big tax deduction for us, but it also normalizes our relationship with the charity, right? Because we don't want want to go to our favorite charity and say, hey, you know what? Here's a very large donation, December of 2023. And please don't contact me. I'll be back in touch in four or five years and I'll start giving again, right? We like to generally give, you know, on a consistent basis. The donor advised fund lets us do that, but up, you know, accelerates, puts up front that big tax deduction. So we like that. Um, And then in terms of another thing that some folks in the audience may be able to pull the plug on is uh, tax loss harvesting, right? That's where, hey, we have a built-in loss could be an old cat and dog in our portfolio. It could be some other assets in our taxable account where, hey, look, if we sell this, we'll trigger a loss. That loss can do one of two things, right? It can offset other capital gains we happen to have this year. So if we had a big capital gain earlier in the year, maybe we should be looking through our portfolio to find some losses and maybe we sell that before the end of the year. Um, If we didn't have capital gains or only a limited amount of capital gains, we still might want to do this tax loss harvesting because we can deduct every year up to $3,000 against our ordinary income. What is our ordinary income? Our W-2 income, our self-employment income, our retirement account distributions, Mm -hmm. our interest income, those sorts of things. We could take a small deduction against that too through tax loss harvesting. So that's a few things to sort of keep in mind as we approach year end. Maybe we could pull the trigger on some of those things and get some nice benefits now, uh, which doesn't hurt. And why not think about it when the year's about to be over and maybe this year's a much higher income year than maybe uh, next year's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like, I like that there's at least a few levers that you can look to right now um, in order to reduce the taxes that you're going to owe what come filing time next spring. Right. But drill down on giving a little bit for me, Sean, because I too am kind of obsessed with donor advice funds. Once I kind of figured out what those were, how to use them effectively, and that there was actually you know a great low cost provider out there, I was like hook, line, and sinker. I'm sold. But in, in order to take advantage of the tax benefits of charitable giving, it takes donating a pretty massive chunk of money in order for itemizing to make sense for a whole lot of folks. The, most people are taking the standard deduction, which means that charitable giving doesn't offer them any sort of a tax break. And what do you think about batching uh, as your giving strategy? in order to help some of those folks itemize in one year and take the standard in another? Yeah, great question, Joel. So when we think about uh, deductions, right, we're either going to take the standard deduction on our tax return, federal tax return, or we're going to itemize. And for itemization today, we have what I refer to as the big three. We have state and local taxes, but those are limited to what we actually paid or $10,000. So for the high tax states, a lot of folks are just limited at $10,000. Second thing we've got is um, home mortgage interest, right? So if you already have a paid off home, well, there's no deduction there. And then the third thing are these charitable contributions. 
And we live in an environment with very high standard deductions. So if my itemized deductions are, I tally them up, it's only $15,000, and I'm married, and I believe the number is 27200 for the year 2023, well, I'm just going to take the standard deduction, that 27200 So if I'm thinking about a donation to a uh, donor-advised fund, I sort of need to get to critical mass for it to make the most sense. So what I mean by that is, I should take a look at where my deductions are today on the itemized side, right? What's my home mortgage interest this year? My other charitables I've already made, any state and local taxes. And am I close to the standard deduction or am I way below the standard deduction? And if I'm way below the standard deduction, maybe the donor advised fund doesn't make a lot of sense. But maybe, oh boy, you know, I'm at say 24, 25,000 already in itemized deductions. I'm not quite the standard deduction. But if I did say a $20,000 donor advised fund, now I'm over $40,000 and I'm really getting a lot of benefit from having done that donor advised fund. So this year, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a, a large contribution to the donor advised fund. Great. I'm going to take a $44,000, $45,000 deduction in my example this year. And then next year, I'm going to go back on the high standard deduction in my, you know, I believe it's over 29,000 next yeah. year. It's some big number for if we're married. So I'm, I'm basically playing this game. And what I've done is I've essentially bunched deductions by doing that. Now, in theory, you don't need a donor advised fund to do that. You could just, you know, in December, find your lo- your favorite charities and bunch and just do a whole bunch this year and not as much next year. I mean, that's possible, but that's part of the reason I like the donor advised fund is it normalizes the relationship between donor and charity. One last thing just to keep in mind, though, as much as we're all fond of the donor advised fund, you do have to remember that money is no longer yours. Yep. <laughs> so it can't come back to you to fix the roof or put in a pool or, you know, go to Vegas or whatever it is you might need. So you do want to be just, you want to be careful, right? Can I really afford to separate myself from these particular assets? Yeah, it's not like a Roth IRA where you're, yeah. Can I just go ahead and pull out my contributions? And <laughs> it's like, sorry, that as a backup emergency fund. You can't do that. Sean, what, what about uh, donating securities? Uh, when does that make sense? Or, or actually, maybe like who does that benefit the most when it comes to finding a way to reduce your AGI? Matt, great question. There are going to be some people who should only be donating securities, in my opinion. And then there are going to be some people who should never donate security. So let's do the never, right? The folks who should never donate securities are people with built-in loss positions, right? So what you, what you should do is if you're thinking, hey, you know what? I want to give to charity but I am thinking about giving XYZ stock and it has a built-in loss, what you should do is sell it first, trigger the loss, and then give the cash to the charity. Because if we just give those uh, that XYZ stock with the built-in loss, that loss goes away. We've eliminated that loss. We've helped the IRS. We have not right? harvested it. Yes, yeah. so we haven't harvested it. So if we have built-in loss securities, we want to sell those first and then give cash, right? So that's one person who should never give, at least with respect to that built-in loss stock. They should never give or depreciated securities to charity. But what if we have Acme stock instead? And Acme stock is a big built-in capital gain. And by the way, there are people for whom this applies. There are people who bought, you know, stock in the 80s or 90s, uh, and it's, you know, gone up 25, 50, 100x. That's the sort of stock that should be donated to, uh, to charity. Because what you, what you do is when you donate appreciated stock to charity, 
you get rid of the capital gain for all of human history. It's really cool. So it, it can be a double benefit when we're thinking about charitable contribution strategies. We should look through our portfolio. Is there stock that maybe I don't want to invest in right now for whatever reason, and it has a built-in uh, capital gain? Boy, that's a nice asset to move directly, either directly to the charity or directly to the donor advised fund. Do not sell it first, right? If we sell it, that triggers the gain, even if we donate the resulting cash to a charity or to a donor advised fund. So most donor advised funds will accept publicly traded stock, individual equities. You, uh, that's something I myself do. I've actually, I just did it this week, literally moved some nice. appreciated stock from my uh, taxable portfolio to a donor advised fund, and you eliminate the built-in capital gain for all of human history. It's a it's a really it's a double benefit of using a donor advised fund or even a charitable con you know just a direct contribution to a charity. Yeah, so I, I guess it just streams streamlines things when you're using the donor advised fund, kind of, then, and then you can decide well, where you parse off those donations to after the fact. And I love those great urine advice. Like, but we want the main thrust of this conversation to be about optimizing tax rate tax rates over the years and the decades. Right? We're not just thinking like, oh, how do I maximize just uh, minimize taxes for tax year twenty twenty three? We're thinking about tax minimization over over the long haul. And I know you're all about that, Sean. I know that's kind of where your brain naturally goes to. What are the broad strokes of thinking holistically about our tax situation? If if, if someone comes to you and say like tax planning. <laughs> what is yes. what do you mean by tax planning and how does that differ from just kind of trying to reduce current year taxes? Yeah. So what I'd say is this, you should be thinking about how do I reduce my total lifetime taxation? And think about that in terms of a world with imperfect information. We don't have perfect information, but we have good information. I'll come back to some of that information in a moment. Second thing I want to say is this, Having money in a traditional retirement account and having money in a Roth retirement account are both good things, right? So I'm going to give you some analysis and some opinions, but do keep in mind an overarching principle, which is this. It is not a bad thing to have money in a traditional retirement account, and it's not a bad thing to have money in a Roth retirement account. But now let's step back and say, well, what information do we have? What we, ha what we know is this. When we contribute, say, at work to a 401k, we get a deduction at our marginal rate. So I bet most of the listeners are familiar with the progressive tax rates, right? If you make $100 million, the rate you pay on that last you know, million is a lot different than the rate that the secretary pays at work on their W-2, right? Not, not so sure how you these... do Matt's income there, Sean, but way to go. <laughs> <laughs> but we have these progressive tax rates. And what happens is, when you're thinking about, okay, do I do a traditional 401k contribution at work? Well, what's the upfront tax benefit of that? You have to look at your so-called marginal rate. What's the rate you pay on the last dollar? I bet for a lot of folks in the audience, it's going to be, for federal purposes, 22%, 24%, or 32%, right? That's a number we can, for many in the audience, and look, for some in the audience, it's going to be smaller. For some in the audience, it's going to be greater. But I'd say 22, 24, 32 is probably going to be where a lot of the audience lands. Okay, great. That's the benefit up front of a traditional 401k contribution. But Sean, what about withdrawals in retirement? Well, yes, that's very important. Because what happens is we have these traditional 401ks, maybe they're traditional IRAs, whatever it is, but you got to pay the piper at some point. So in retirement, you got to take that money out and it's fully taxable. Isn't that a problem? Well... Let's think about what that taxation looks like. 
And you got to remember when you're retired, other than maybe some Social Security, although that can be delayed all the way to 70, other than maybe some Social Security, and, and that's not going to be a huge amount, most retirees do not tend to produce a lot of taxable income. There might be some interest income, some dividend income, but even for the relatively affluent, that's going to be a small number. So, all right, I want to live off my 401k or traditional IRA. I know it's taxable. Well, how is it taxed? Well, it comes back into taxable income going through those tax brackets. And in fact, some of it might just go against the standard deduction, which, like we mentioned, can mm. be very high. So some of it's going to be taxed at a 0% rate. A bunch of it's going to be taxed in the first tax bracket, the 10% rate, and then the 12% rate, and then the 22% rate. And it turns out most retirees have an effective tax rate in the high single digits or low to mid, maybe upper teens. Hmm. So what that's telling us is while there's no risk-free position here, why are we not deducting at 22%, 24%, 32% when even many affluent retirees pay an effective tax rate on those 401k withdrawals in the high single digits, low, mid, high teens? If I, if I take a deduction at 22%, and then years later have taxable inclusions at maybe a, a 19 or 18 or 17 percent rate. And by the way, for many Americans, it's going to be lower. But even that example, I'm making money off the IRS. I'm winning and the IRS is losing. And what I think that tells us is for many Americans, an optimal path from a tax perspective is going to be take those deductions in your working years while you're at work. And then, you know, okay, fine, we have traditional retirement account distributions to live off of, but they're not that big a deal because many Americans are making money. That's called tax rate arbitrage. And, you know, I think for many Americans, that's going to work out very well. Yeah, this kind of segues perfectly into a conversation that we had at FinCon. Uh, but you, you were kind of talking about this and specifically, like you're a fan of the Roth IRA, but less enthusiastic about the Roth 401k um, that many folks now have access to the the Roth 401k and we talk about the benefits of Roths and so I think a lot of folks might hear oh sweet well now I have a Roth 401k it's even better right but it sounds like oftentimes you're probably going to steer folks away from the Roth 401k and instead towards a traditional 401k is that accurate Matt absolutely so let's step back and we have to think about a Roth IRA contribution versus a Roth 401k contribution Roth 401k contribution, again, not, not an evil thing, right? It has attributes, it has benefits, but there's a trade-off there. Every dollar I put into my Roth 401k is a dollar I cannot deduct today at work into my traditional 401k. So there's a real opportunity cost, right? There's a real trade-off there. Well, let's think about at home, right? Roth IRA, people love Roth IRAs, myself included. Well, let's think about, well, if I contribute to my Roth IRA, is that a foregone tax deduction? For most Americans, the answer is no. If we have work, a workplace retirement account, it, based on income limits, it's very difficult to deduct a traditional IRA contribution. So there's not that trade-off that I have at work. At home, it's either do a Roth IRA contribution or maybe something called a backdoor Roth IRA. We could talk about that. Or just invest in a taxable brokerage account because I can't deduct my traditional IRA contribution. I can do a non-deductible IRA contribution that has limited benefit unless we're doing the backdoor Roth. But 
boiling it down is I, I like to do what I sometimes refer to as dynamic duo planning optimize for the tax deductions at work, so traditional 401k, and then at home do the Roth IRA or the backdoor Roth if I can, because I generally speaking can't deduct into a traditional IRA at home. So now I'm doing you know a large traditional deductible 401k, and oh, by the way, I've got my Roth IRA and I'm doing some dynamic duo planning there. Okay. Well, you also, you talk about Rothification risks, right? How people then, if they're funneling more into their traditional 401k, they have to pay attention, right, when they opt to convert pre-tax dollars, the traditional 401k money, into Roth dollars later on down the road. In your opinion, is that like a DIY maneuver that people can figure out? Do you need the help of like a tax professional? How do people eventually, eventually down the road, convert those dollars in lower earning years without kind of screwing things up? Look, I myself use the Roth IRA. I'm, I'm a fan of the Roth IRA. But I'm saying let's not have all our eggs in the Roth basket. And part of the reason I'm saying that is Roth contributions end the planning, right? Yeah. <laughs> it basically means we're never going to be able to do a Roth conversion with that money. Why don't we you know, get a bunch of money in those traditional retirement accounts so that when we get to retirement, we've got planning opportunities, Right, we can do Roth conversions when our taxable income is otherwise low. There are going to be plenty of people in the audience who get to retirement, say at age 55 and 60, something like that, and they've got a bunch of taxable assets. They'll just live off those for the first few years of retirement. Capital gains tend to be lightly taxed. You have basis recovery in capital gains, so you might be in a very low tax bracket. And oh, by the way, I could do Roth conversions at that point because I don't even need the traditional retirement account to live off of. So there's there's just a lot of opportunity with these traditional retirement accounts. And I think folks should not overlook that opportunity, even though Roth gets all this great publicity out exactly. there. Exactly. Well, and <laughs> it, it does because it truly is fantastic. But like you said, not putting all of your retirement eggs and a single basket is a, is a good approach. And it just leaves you with a lot of options down the road to optimize. Uh, Sean, we're going to continue talking with you. We're going to discuss some changes that are going to be coming to 401ks, uh, as well as a, just an excellent retirement account. If you've got a side business, we'll get to all of that right after this. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you to get there? Well, there are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. What about that dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, your health and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at AARP.org slash wise friend. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simons on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. 
Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app Monarch, they make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. And you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney. For your extended 30-day free trial, go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. All right, we're back. We're still talking with Sean Mullaney about tax planning in order to shrink your taxes, but not necessarily just for 2023. Hopefully, shrinking your overall tax bill over for the long haul. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> exactly. And uh, uh, Sean, I, I, I wish the tax landscape wasn't this like ever-shifting sort of, sort of thing. Like It feels like shifting sand sometimes, but tax policy and rates change over time. The Tax Cuts and Job Act is set to expire. Who knows what politicians are going to do? That's supposed to expire at the end of 2025, so in not, the not-too-distant future. How would you say, how does not being able to predict future tax rates inform how you think about shifting your tax burden from the here and now to down the road? That's a great question. And all financial planning has imperfect information, right? Because we don't know future outcomes. We don't know future spending perfectly. We don't know future stock market, bond market returns perfectly, right? So we're always working with imperfect information. Um, And you mentioned Tax Cuts and Job Act, which has been very helpful to many Americans, particularly early retirees, right? We have a higher standard deduction because of that bill. We have a 12% bracket instead of a 15% bracket because of that bill. And that's very helpful for early retirees, people looking to do affirmative tax planning in terms of Roth conversions and those sorts of things. A lot of low income earners too, right? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So we say, well, wait a minute, what's going to happen in the future? And all I can do is I can look at congressional motivation and I can look (laughs) at what they've done in recent vintage, right? And this is both Democrats and Republicans. So I'm not saying, oh, it's (laughs) this party or that party. If you look at what they've done in recent tax bills, they keep uncutting taxes for retirees, right? They delayed RMDs first from age 70 and a half to 72. Well, they weren't satisfied with that. Then they said, well, no, we're going to do it from 72 to 73, and then for many Americans to 75, right? Uh, They increased the standard deduction. They issued a new RMD table, which lowers RMDs. Now, that wasn't Congress, but it was still the government, right? So every time Washington sneezes, it seems like retirees are getting another tax cut, right? 
And you look at the political motivation, right? Retirees tend to show up on election day. So my thesis is that these so-called expiring tax cuts that from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act um, that are scheduled to go away January 1st, 2026 are most likely not going away, particularly in terms of things like the standard deduction, the 12% bracket, those sorts of things. Um, Look, if, if you disagree with my thesis and you're an early retiree right now, yeah, you'd probably want to do more Roth conversions in 23, 24, 25 because you're worried about future tax rates increasing. But if you agree with my thesis, then I think what you'd do is you'd step back and say, well, what are my personal circumstances, right? What does my income look like in 23, 24, 25? And what's it going to look like in 26, 27, 28? And I'm going to do Roth conversions as an early retiree based much more on my personal circumstances than on speculation in terms of future tax rates. Which makes a lot of sense to base your decisions on what you know, and or at least what you know that you want, at least in the, in, in the here and now. But like you said, trying to predict what the government's going to do. That's a, <laughs> a perpetually losing battle. But what you're saying, I think, is generally true because like what we're talking about is austerity and cutting back, removing benefits from individuals, whether that's a benefit in the form of actual payouts or whether that's in the form of tax cuts. It's difficult that once those have been let out of the bag to put them back in the bag. It takes the rare Margaret Thatcher type, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. And maybe, who knows, maybe we will actually experience that. But Gosh, it really does seem like it's difficult as a country. We get used to some of these, quote unquote, luxuries that then turn into needs as viewed through the eyes of the public. So one of the different changes to the law that we've seen was with the SECURE Act. It made a lot of changes to the retirement system. Uh, but that being said, the changes are being rolled out gradually. It's sort of like student loan repayment. There's a there's a nice long on-ramp here, but there's going to be a few new rules that are going to be coming into being soon. For instance, companies are going to be able to match student lo- loan payments with retirement contributions. Is that is that right? And so employees, they're not even going to have to make a contribution to their 401k. All they got to do is work on pay, uh, paying off those student loans. Yeah, there's a provision in Secure 2.0, which was passed December 2022, which says that for purposes of determining a employer matching contribution into something like a 401k, what they can treat as a 401k contribution is a student loan repayment. And I don't know all the mechanics of of that. And frankly, I don't think even the IRS knows all the mechanics of that right now. But that is coming into play. And I think it may be for 2024. Don't quote me on that. Because like like you you said, Matt, unfortunately, there are all these different effective dates. So I'd have to go back into into the bill text. But that is absolutely out there. And Look, if you're repaying student loans, you should look into whether your 401k plan has that feature because, look, matching contributions matter from employees into 401k. So that's absolutely out there as something to be thinking about in terms of a positive change from Secure 2.0. Yeah, there's, a, I think, a, a mandate to, about auto-enrolling all employees into 401k accounts, but I don't think that one hits till 2025. For some reason, that one got delayed a little bit further. Talk about, um, th- there's another change in Secure Act 2.0, like penalty-free withdrawals for emergency expenses from your 401k. That's a new thing, I think, starting in 2024. I think it's just a thousand bucks or something like that. But Matt and I were we're typically loath to tell anyone to take money out of a retirement account for any reason. But this seems like a, a place, I guess, where people could use their retirement account 
as an emergency fund? So a couple things on that. And this one gets so complicated and detailed. I have a separate blog post I could give you guys for the show notes. Nice. We'll share it. <laughs> because there's so many new provisions in Secure 2.0. So one provision, I refer to this as minor emergency withdrawals, right? This is a $1,000 provision. And this applies, to my understanding, to all retirement accounts, where you're going to be able to take $1,000 out of any retirement account for an emergency situation and not pay the 10% early withdrawal penalty. So that's out there. And in fact, you, there's usually a mechanism, I believe it's a, uh, a refunding mechanism. You have three years to put it back yep. <laughs> into the retirement account. So that's one. But then there's another thing. It's a emergency account that's going to be added to 401ks, but it's up to the employer. It's a $2,500 maximum account. So it's not a very large number, but I recently saw a YouTube video that claimed that Starbucks and Delta are adding this to their 401k plans. I suspect many 401k plans will not add this, but I mean, apparently Starbucks and Delta, those are two large employers, as we know. They've apparently added this, I believe it's effective 2024, where you can contribute to an emergency account uh, up to $2,500. It's a Roth account. It has to be invested in uh, like cash and cash-like uh, investments, but you can then take that money, no tax, no penalty for an emergency situation. So that's something to at least look into. And in fact, even if you're not too worried about uh, emergencies, you might want to look into that because maybe you work at Starbucks for five years and you have a $2,500 Roth 401k emergency account. You leave there, you could just roll that out into a Roth IRA to my understanding. So it could be just another way to get some money into a Roth account hmm. Where, hey, you know what, if you're maxing out the deductible account anyway, maybe that makes a lot of sense. I'd have to think about it and you have to look at each individual situation. So there are these emergency withdrawal provisions. Um, and, and frankly, to my mind, they're a little too complicated and a little too, little too lengthy. But I do have a blog post that goes into detail on a lot of nice. them. Nice. Yeah, again, we'll, we'll certainly link to that if folks are if folks do find that interesting, because on one hand, I like it because it's like, OK, let's go ahead and get folks started investing and let's assume all goes well and they don't have to draw on that. Well, guess what? They've already got a head start mm-hmm. uh, in effect when it comes to investing. But if something were to happen, OK, you can pull that out without penalty. I don't like that, though, because seems like it it's could... a retirement account. The whole yeah. point is, is of that account is that you don't touch it. <laughs> it could be a behavioral nightmare. Yes. Until retirement. And so it feels like. Potentially, the waters could be getting muddied a little bit. And I guess from that aspect, I don't like it. Yeah, I I think it solves for something that isn't that much of an issue, right? Because there's something that can be used for emergencies very easily. And that's called a savings account or even a checking account. Because here's the thing. If I had an emergency situation, do I want to now interface with my employer 401k? Right, I probably don't want to interface with them. They're not designed, like you you said, they're retirement plans. They're not designed for emergency withdrawals. That's the other thing, too. If I'm an employer, do I want my employees coming to me in an urgent situation right. where they're looking to get 2000 bucks out of my plan on an urgent basis? My plan generally isn't set up for that. I'd rather them go to their online savings account, and those things are set up to take money out pretty quickly. So that's my own personal perspective on it. But look, we're not here to give individual advice yeah. to anybody in the audience. We're here to raise awareness. And look, it's it's something at least worth considering if your employer happens to offer. Yeah. All right, let's talk about solopreneurs. So the, just a second ago, we're talking about people with traditional 401k plans, W-2 sort of employees, and their ability to 
take money out of these retirement accounts and stuff like that. But this is something you've got a lot of expertise on, Sean. You, you, you even wrote the definitive book, I would say, about solo 401k accounts, which I want to talk about in just a second. But before we get to the specifics of the solo 401k and why it's such a great account, what are solopreneurs usually doing wrong from a tax perspective? And you might be able to highlight actually a number of things on this front. I'm not sure. Yeah. So being a solopreneur is a great way to pay a whole lot of taxes, right? And so what are folks doing wrong? I would say the first thing is not having the right systems and processes in place in terms of their accounting, right? Because you start running up expenses and it can be a difficult way to sustain those or it could be just become a mess, right? So thinking about things like hiring a bookkeeper, I think depending on the enterprise, that might be a really good thing, or at least having some accounting software where you're entering your expenses and your business bank account, having a business bank account, those sorts of things. That's the first thing I think a lot of solopreneurs get wrong. So just having the right systems in place, and it doesn't have to be that complicated, right? There are on, there are bookkeepers who work virtually, there's online accounting software, there are solutions that are not that painful in that regard. So that's the first thing. Second thing is the tax planning. And I'll give you one, and you you alluded to my book on solo 401ks. A lot of self-employed folks use something called a SEP IRA. And look, a SEP IRA is not a bad thing, right? But let's step back and say, well, if we're looking to optimize for our retirement contributions, wouldn't it be better to have an account that allows both so-called employee contributions and employer contributions? I think for those looking to maximize retirement account savings, that's probably true. SEP IRA is an okay account, but it only has employer contributions. So I give an example of, well, what if you had $100,000, they call it Schedule C income, right? So you know, what, what's your SEP IRA max contribution? It's a little over $18,500, a lot of money where I come from. But what if you had a solo 401k instead? Well, that would be over $40,000 because you can contribute as both an employer and an employee. That's right. So I would say, look, you know, for a lot of solopreneurs out there, thinking about something like a solo 401k makes a whole lot of sense because it can be a user-friendly account and it can offer very generous tax deductions, or hey, maybe you disagree with me on Roth. Well, guess what? Maybe you could get a bunch of money into a Roth solo 401k. Yeah. That's a valid planning tactic too. All right, uh, Sean, we got a few more questions we want to get to with you, including like how to find the right tax professional to help you think more holistically. We'll get to a few questions on that right after this. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you to get there? Well, there are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. What about that dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, your health and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org wisefriend. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pump for that. But sometimes those vacations 
get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host, or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app Monarch, they make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. And you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. All right, we are back. And again, we're talking with Sean Mullaney on how you can plan your taxes so that you can shrink what it is that you owe the IRS. Can I just say we tried to get John Mullaney for this episode, but he said no. <laughs> and so we had to go with Sean. But the good news is I, I don't. I would much rather be talking to Sean Mullaney about taxes <laughs> than John Mullaney. I don't think John would have had much to offer on this. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Sean, I, I saw a quote recently that was talking about how we should certainly pay the IRS what we owe them. But anything that we don't have to pay them, it's sort of like a tip. And with tipping culture today, uh, I don't think anybody wants to pay more than what they feel like they have to or, or what they should. And that's what you're all about is trying to find ways to, to make sure that we're not over over uh, paying our taxes to the government. But we've talked through some complicated, I guess, maneuvers in particular. We're kind of talking about Roth conversions. I think a lot of our listeners, they're going to hear all of this and they're going to say, man, this all sounds great. I love it but I'm pretty sure I need some help. How can someone out there decide whether or not they need a human professional to help them file their taxes? Like what situations should maybe tip people off that, or kind of like even tip them over the edge a little bit from a DIY approach to actually needing to hire a pro? Yeah, so, and this is a tough question, right? Um, I'll give you, a, I'll start off with four indicators that sort of say, you know what, I might need a professional here. Love it. The first indicator is early retirement, and we're doing things like Roth conversions, and we're thinking about things like the premium tax credit because we're on a ACA medical insurance plan, right? Early retirement, uh, Roth conversions, ACA insurance, that's a great indicator. Maybe I need some professional assistance. Second one is what we just talked about, self-employment. Right. If, if I've got a business, I'm thinking about retirement plan contributions with respect to that business, those sorts of things. Absolutely a great indicator that I need a professional. 
Third one would be rental real estate, right? I think most folks should not be going in alone when they've got rental real estate and it's showing up on their tax return. That's a great indicator that they might need a professional. And then the fourth one would be a sizable inheritance, particularly a sizable inherited IRA uh, inheritance, right? And this is going to be out there more and more, right? Your parents do not need to be very rich or affluent to have $300,000 in a traditional IRA, right? That does not make them a Rockefeller, right? That (laughs) makes them a rather average person. They pass away. They leave it to you. You now have a $300,000 tax time bomb, right, that you need to manage, and you may need some professional assistance there as well. Yeah, and there's, a what, a 10-year timeline on the drawdown of that inheritance IRA, so you definitely want and, – and but it doesn't have to be equal distribution, so it makes it the potential to do some tax planning there with the help of a pro as opposed to trying to figure it out on your own. Oh, absolutely, and, and that's an area that is very convoluted in terms of just tax rules, even for professionals, so that's an area I would say boy, that says to me, I ought to be thinking about um, hiring a professional. And then folks worry about, well, what, where do I find the professional? And how do I find the professional? And what's even the services I need, right? Different folks need different services. Um, when we think about maybe doing our tax return, there's actually a model that I think is emerging out there. Um, there's a woman named Andrea McDonald. Her firm, Steadfast Bookkeeping, has this model where they say, we're going to do the tax return as the end of a defined process. It's not just its own thing, and it's not going to be the beginning and the end. What they do is they say, okay, during the year in question, we're going to do some consulting with you. We're going to talk to you about your circumstances, what's changed this year, what are your goals, and there's planning during the year. And then in the next year, we do the tax return, and the tax return is completing the sentence, right? We worked on the sentence during the year, and then we complete the sentence and get get the punctuation right at the, you know, in the next year by doing the tax return. But we already are familiar with everything because we looked at it during the year. So I, I like that process. The other thing I would say for folks looking for a tax return preparer is consider asking them to prepare the return on extension. Right, because you have to step into the shoes of a potential tax return preparer and think about what does their late February, March, early <laughs> April look like? It looks terrible. Yeah. Right. So why do you want your return preparer's time and attention in that time frame? Why don't you instead say, you know what, tax return preparer, here's my information. What I want to know from you before April 15th is, do I owe any money, right? Because we can extend the time to file the tax return. We can't extend the time to pay. So can I get some time and attention now, not to dot I's and cross T's, but rather just take a look at my information. Do, Do you think I owe and I can make an estimated payment by April 15th? But where I want your time and attention is to dot I's and cross T's on the tax return. But let's do that in May, June, July, August, when you're on a much more normal sleep schedule <laughs> and you're less frazzled. And I'll get your time and attention on the return when we when you're in a better place. And I think that optimizes the chances that both return preparer and taxpayer are going to have a good experience with that particular tax return. I love that. Yeah. And I I really do like that process too of providing some consultation throughout the year 
And then, like you said, just adding that period at the end at the end of the sentence. Otherwise, the tax preparer becomes the bearer of bad news. And I'm guessing that's not something that's not a position you want to put yourself in, Sean. Uh, somebody that comes to you and, and is just like, all right, go ahead and just tell me what it is that I <laughs> that I owe, as opposed to <laughs> having been able to work with that person and ha- to make some strategic changes the previous year that would then allow you to deliver that good news. Yeah. So how, how do you then find someone who's not just a tax preparer, a return filer but someone who is a uh, a tax planning helper is it questions that you ask when you're kind of vetting some folks or something like that or or how you mentioned one person in her planning firm but how how do you find more folks who think about it more holistically kind of like you and andrea do yeah so what i would do on that is i'd understand that there's no perfect answer here there's no group or credential i can just look to and that's going to give me what i'm looking for So I I will say, unfortunately, the tax return industry, um, it grew up focused on getting those returns out the door and getting paid for getting those returns out the door. And that is a misincentive, right? That incentivizes folks to focus on the returns and not so much on the planning because they focus on where the check came from, right? And it's on the return. What I would do is this. I, I would take advantage of being in the year 2023, right? Think about it. If you're looking for a tax return preparer who's planning focused, you would, you know, 15 years ago, you would have to drive all over creation around you, right? Going, getting off the highway, interviewing people, going to their offices. It's the year 2023. Mm -hmm. You don't need a tax return preparer in your own state, right? Think about that. You can work virtually now with a tax return preparer. Um, What I would recommend is do some research and find folks who are willing to have a 30 minute, you know, potential client meeting virtually And you can now do this from the comfort of your own couch, right? Meet with folks, see what their process looks like, see what their fees look like, and see how you relate with them. And just take advantage of the fact I don't have to get on the highway and, you know, go to five different offices scattered throughout my area. I can interview folks all across this great country and figure this out from the comfort of my own living room. I like that. And so that's what I would do is I would interview a few potential providers and see what they offer and see how I click with them and make a decision from there. Nice. I think that's awesome advice. Sean, do you think that, is there anything else that we should be aware of? Any changes that might might be coming down the pipe that might impact, whether it be retirement or taxes? Uh, do you have any final thoughts for us? I'll just mention two sort of current events for you. One is my prediction for the year 2024 is it's an election year. So I tend to think there's not going to be much in the way of tax legislation coming out of Washington, D.C. Look, all free predictions wrong or your money back. (laughs) But I think 2025 is where we're going to see some real tax legislation that would affect retirement planning, those sorts of things. Second thing is... There is a Supreme Court case on taxes right now, which is very rare. It's very exciting. (laughs) And it's a case It's called Moore versus the United States. And it deals with a very esoteric tax issue that could have all sorts of ramifications for Americans in the future. Oral arguments in that case are in early December. So watch for some news around that. And the decision is going to come sometime in 2024. It may be a very narrow decision that has no impact on most listeners or it could be something that's a lot more far-ranging. It's called Moore versus the United States. Sort of an interesting uh, case. I did a YouTube video about it a while back. Um, so it's one of those things that, in theory, 
could have wide-ranging impact or it could have absolutely no impact. So it's just something to watch out for. Nice. Love it. All right. Well, maybe once that verdict comes down, we'll bring you on to talk about it. So, uh, Sean, we always enjoy talking to you, man. Thanks so much for joining us. Where can our listeners find out more about you, what you're up to, and your awesome book about solo 401ks? Thanks so much, Matt and Joel. So you guys can find me at phytaxguy.com. That's my blog. I tend to refer to that as my internet home. You can also find me on YouTube, Sean Mulaney Videos, and on Twitter, Sean Money and Tax. Nice. We'll make sure to link to all of that, including that more versus U.S. video that you, uh, <laughs> yeah. that you toss up there on YouTube. Sean, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. All right, Matt, got to love Sean Mullaney, his sweet new goatee that he's sporting, <laughs> and his wonderful advice on tax planning. You can't tease. I mean, you mentioned it earlier as well, but we, we we'll a little, put a picture of him. A little peek behind notes. the curtain. We always leave the video on for a second when we uh, start an interview with folks, just to say hi, but we always cut the video so that because we sit over here at our table and he wouldn't be able to see us yeah and some folks would say oh you should put your podcast up on youtube but eh, it's too much work seems, we're not it seems kind of onerous yeah <laughs> we like the audio stuff not the video as much but um yeah no this is a great combo love sean yeah. love his advice and a lot of practical stuff i think for for people to hopefully uh help benefit their tax situation so that yeah they're they're paying less to the irs they have more of their money to use for building wealth for giving away whatever they choose to do with it but what, what are your thoughts matt do you have a big takeaway from this one yeah man he gave some awesome takeaways. I mean, he, he mentioned sort of those four indicators as to whether or not you need to hire a professional. But mm-hmm. I think my actual takeaway is going to be is going to have to do with uh, starting your own small side business or if you're a solopreneur. And he mentioned a couple ways that uh, small business owners make mistakes. And one of them was poor accounting practices, basically. And he was just pointing out how just with either free software that's available. I mean, gosh, we was it yes or on Monday's episode we talked about Lily yeah. and the features that it includes uh, when it comes to keeping up with your books. There, there, there are other fairly inex- inexpensive softwares too that are there, that are able to help people do that. There too. are solutions out there, and you want to make sure that you're keeping up with those expenses that you're able to to deduct those. So just the general accounting like that being a mistake, but then also. The solo or the self-employed 401k. If you are a solopreneur and you are not taking advantage of that account, you are missing out on an incredible way to sock away a ton of money. Because again, we've mentioned this before, but Sean touched on it. The ability to contribute not only as an employer, which is what you were to do if you were to open a SEP, uh, IRA, which stands for, I think it's a simplified employee, employee pension. pension, right? Yeah. And so that pension is the key word. You can only contribute as an employer. It's a plan that the employer sets up. But with a self-employed 401k or solo 401k, you can obviously contribute as an employee, just like you would with a traditional 401k. So there are a lot of avenues. There are multiple paths that you can take to be able to sock away a ton of money. And that's incredibly important, especially if you're interested in early retirement, yeah. if, if that's a goal of yours. Yeah, it's going to help you throw more dollars into that account. And it's also going to reduce your taxable burden even more significantly in the here and now. So Talk I think about less taxes. Yeah, there so, you go. So the 401k makes sense for a lot of those folks. Win-win. Although actually maxing it out on both both ends would oh, mean it's... You'd it's have to incredibly be hard, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but even still, the ability to go above and beyond. Yeah. All right. So I think my big takeaway from this combo was when Sean said that we have imperfect information, but it's still important to plan. And so it's true. we don't know what things are going to be like. I mean, like, gosh, you look back at tax rates from the 1960s and 70s and 80s and stuff, and it's like, but things have changed a lot since then, uh, for the better <laughs> for most American taxpayers. And we don't really know where things are going to go from here. Not nope. exactly, but there's still a lot that we can bank on. And I love kind of 
of his philosophy on traditional 401k through work, especially if you're in one of those higher tax brackets, and then Roth IRA at home in that in that personal account that you can open. Uh, that's a good way to kind of mix up your tax planning, but it also gives you the the ability to actually continue to plan over time because he said, yeah, when you stick it just directly in the Roth in the beginning, you end the ability to plan. You end the there ability. No future future moves that yeah, you can then make you with can't, that money. You can't shift the amount of tax you owe. Uh, you've already paid the tax. It and so it is. I, I think that that's a helpful way to think about it. He, you and I, we had a nice 10-minute uh, discussion with him in New Orleans about this very topic. We are like, wait a second. <laughs> there's a lot here. This kind of sounds like an episode. We need to talk to you about that. So I'm glad he was able to come on and talk about why that's so important. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, big thanks to Sean for coming on. Matt, let's get back to the beer, though. Let's share it. This or- one. We shared it, but let's yeah. see. Let, let folks know what we drink. This was a petite MC by Monday night, and this one was donated to the show by our friend Ryan. Yeah, so he, actually a real friend of mine since high school. Yeah, um, actually I think we might have gone to elementary school together. Really? Yeah, yeah. He's a new friend of mine. We go way of back, of course. Uh, but Ryan, anybody that brings by beers, is my new bestie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So, uh, by the way, I think the MC, I think it stands for mixed culture. Oh, this yeah. is a, a table beer aged in French barrels. But what were your thoughts on it? I. Loved it. I So good. I thought it was like, uh, it had like fruit zest notes. Mm-hmm. It was light. It had a slight funkiness. It was exactly yeah. what I want in a table beer mm-hmm. where it's got some punch. It's got some pizzazz, but it's also not like overwhelming. No pa- no palate fatigue. It's, it's zero like, palate fatigue. So it's yeah. called a table beer because oftentimes it's the kind of beer that you have at the table with a meal. So it doesn't overpower the flavors of the food. And typically they're low ABV, so mm, you can drink yeah. a lot of it. This one's 4%. Yeah. So you don't have to yeah worry about, especially for us, be, I mean, it's a little risky for us to throw down a 14% stout but yeah. something like this man uh, it puts us at ease that's right <laughs> I'm all about doing the our job low ABV beers and, and I feel like yep. in the past few years we've just seen a resurgence of really high quality really tasty beers that are low yeah. low low in alcohol the content. pendulum really swung to that far end of high gravity beers thinking that that is what was required in order to have good flavor yeah. and this just proves that that's not the that's case. exactly right there's a whole lot of oakiness that comes from those french barrels as well which i absolutely love and, and just like yeah the mixed culture just like the the little yeast bit, and stuff that are tossed in there it just really it's brings great. out a whole bunch of notes so big thanks to ryan for uh donating this one to us we appreciate it all right matt that's gonna do it for this episode we'll put links to everything that we mentioned including sean's website and sean's book up on the website at howtomoney.com that's right man so that's gonna be it until next time best friends out. Best friends out. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. 
Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.